Okay, we are one church in three locations, and so we've got our campuses in Carpentry and Ventura tuning in. We want them to know that we love them. Let's give them some love right now. And let's open up in our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll be continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians. We plan on being in Ephesians pretty much forever. Uh, last week in the sermon, I yelled a lot, if you'll remember. And okay, okay, so that's the weirdest thing. All week long, people have been saying, I love it when you yell. <laughs> like, that's so weird. Why do you love that so much? So I can't conjure that thing up. Like, it just comes when it comes. Um, so I don't, I don't know. But I was very encouraged this week that you guys were all so excited about my emotionalism and my yelling. And uh, it was because of the glory of the Lord and his truth, and it does excite me incredibly. So I will do my best to yell and scream today, but no guarantees whatsoever. Uh, the power of the sermon, or the power, yes, thank you, Lord. The power of the sermon is the Holy Spirit, but the title of the sermon <laughs> is God's power for us, blood. And uh, we'll understand what that means in a few minutes. We're working our way through this amazing prayer that Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. Uh, let's read for a little bit of context, starting verse 15. Our verses for today are 19 and 20, though we'll spend a few weeks studying them. But let's just start reading in verse 15. Paul writes and says, Ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. And now the new ground, starting in verse 19. I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice at your word. Your word to us is wonderful. We, we want to feast on it. We want to feast on your word. We, we want to eat of your word, Lord. For its truth and its light, its living, its nourishment to our souls. And Lord, we don't want any of the truth of your word to be lost on us. We don't want to be passive spectators this morning. We want to be vibrant, engaged worshipers. And so Lord, I want to preach now as an act of worship. Because Jesus, you're worthy. You're worthy of all proclamation. And we want to hear and listen and respond now as an act of worship. Because Jesus, you're worthy to be heard of. You're worthy to be responded to. And so Holy Spirit, enable us for these things. Please enable me to preach by your Spirit. Enable us to hear and to respond by your Spirit. Give us grace to be faithful as the church of Jesus Christ this morning. Thank you that what we're doing here is not an event, and not just a way to pass time, but it is a fulfillment of God's ancient desire to meet with his people. We believe, God, that you're in our midst. And so do great and wonderful things that are beyond human ability. 
and in through your word for your glory and the furtherance of your purposes among the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we'll spend a few weeks in these couple of verses here. And in the first couple of weeks, we're just going to narrow in on that first part of verse 19 where he says, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. The incredible greatness of God's power for us. Last night, uh, my family got together at my mom's house. My sister was in town with her husband and, and uh, my niece, Iver, who's a year and a half old. And I had the kids there with me, Isaiah and Daisy, my kids. Kate was out of town preaching at a women's conference in Southern California. Uh, but we got together because it's my dad's birthday this week. My dad is turning 68 years old and he's going on a fishing trip tomorrow, which he does frequently now that he's retired. He's pretty much always off fishing somewhere. So he's going fishing in Mexico tomorrow, and uh, we decided to celebrate last night. So we got together at my mom's house. We had T-bone steak. It was incredible. Had it on the barbecue. I've told you before, I'm a struggling vegan, so pray for me. I struggled last night. Um, and then further in my struggle, afterwards, my mom brought out all these containers of Haagen-Dazs ice cream. And there was like five of them, five different flavors. There was coffee, which is unbelievable, right? Haagen-Dazs coffee is unbelievable. There's creme brulee. There was green tea, which I'm not too crazy about. Um, there was some other flavor, some chocolatey, caramely thing. But five different things of Haagen-Dazs that she brings out and she sets before us. Also a berry pie. And so I start eating the Haagen-Dazs, which, you know, I'm a struggling vegan, so I'm not really supposed to eat Haagen-Dazs. But I was struggling greatly, and I was uh, eating Haagen-Dazs, and I just kept eating, kept eating. And at one point, I, I literally prayed, knowing the sermon that was coming today, knowing the topic of the power of God, I literally stopped at the table, and I put my head down under my breath. I said, God, give me power not to eat anymore. I just, I, I believe you, God. I believe in the greatness of your power for us who believe. Give me power to stop eating Haagen-Dazs. Legitimately prayed that. Just kind of testing out the text for today. It didn't work. It didn't work. I kept eating until it was gone. And I'm paying the price at this moment. But I have faith that God is able to save me from Haagen-Dazs. I don't think the lack or the failure was with the power of God. I think it was with me and my laying hold of it, my applying the truth. That, that's why Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. Right? He's praying for them to truly understand the incredible greatness of God's power. And if I believe, although I didn't pull it off last night, that God's power could deliver me from Haagen-Dazs, then what else could it do for us. And what little things like that show us is that we desperately need God's power in our lives. Amen? We desperately need God's power in our lives. There's a lot of ways that we could approach that. A real simple way to remind us of that is that we have these real challenges known as the devil, the flesh, and the world. Right? The devil is, is repeatedly and alternately tempting us and accusing us. He tempts us to fail, and then when we fail, he accuses us in our failures, Right? And then the flesh, the flesh who is the devil's willing partner. 
right? And the weakness of the flesh and the passions of the flesh and the frailty of the flesh and, and all those things, that whole Romans 7 struggle. And the world, not talking about the world in the sense that God has given it to, to us to enjoy, but the world that in its spirit is contrary to the spirit of Christ and the glory of God. That would come against Christian truth and Christ's mission. And so, so we have these real foes that, that press in upon us daily. We experience the weight of these things. We experience the tor- turmoil and the struggle of the devil, the flesh, and the world. And what we realize as we live in the to and fro of that battle is that we desperately need God's power in our lives. Now we have God's power, but it is often obscured. It's often not experienced, as was my experience last night with the Haganahs. And that may be because of our, that may be because of our own waywardness. That may be because of our passivity. That may be out of ignorance or, or sin issues. But God's power is something that we have as Christians. But the goal of the Christian life is to fully lay hold of it and experience it. The testimony of many of us, including mine from last night, is that we often fail to do so. Just like we have the light of God, but he prayed in earlier verses that their hearts will be flooded with light because as we dabble in darkness, we find our lives darkened. And so we need divine revelation, divine enlightenment from time to time to walk in the light. We also need a fresh experience of God's power in our lives. And if we truly grasp this thing that Paul's talking about, God's power for us who believe. If we really understand it as he's praying for the church in Ephesus and so by extrapolation us to do, then we begin to think rightly about God and our relationship to him. We begin to live rightly before him. It changes the way that we think about the enemy and his tactics. We don't fall prey so easily to the temptations and the accusations of the enemy. We're not so often ruled by the flesh, its passions, its desires, its frailty. And if we really grasp the power of God, the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him, then we begin to live fruitful, vibrant, on-mission lives in the world. We're not overpowered by the world anymore, but we actually overpower evil with good as we go into the world on mission, empowered by the Spirit of Christ. For some of us, it's more minute. For some of us, we need to grasp God's incredible power for us who believe this morning because we're struggling with the power of addiction. And that power is so tremendous and so large that we need another greater power to rescue us from that. For some of us, it's so immediate because we're overwhelmed with the weight of our guilt. Our failures feel like an unbearable, unmovable burden to us. We need a power that's greater than us to deliver us from that. For some of us, this is an immediate need because our marriages are on the brink of failure. Children will suffer and children's children and networks of relationships. We don't see any way out of that failure. We need a power that is greater than us to rescue our marriages. For some of us, this is so real because we feel helpless in the face of the adversity that is life. Some of our children are horribly sick and we don't know why. Some of us are under 
financial ruin that we see no way out of. All sorts of adversities. We, we need a power that is greater than us to help us, to deliver us in those times. And all of these are part of normal life. And all of these are part of normal Christian life. And the good news that we see displayed in the text today is that we as Christians are never asked to do life in our own strength. That is good news. We're never asked to face these things. Failing marriage, financial difficulties, sick children, addiction, the burden of guilt. We're never asked to face those things alone as Christians. We're never beckoned to do anything in our own strength, power, wherewithal, or American getterdonism. And the Bible has good news for us. Paul will go on to say to the church of Ephesus in chapter 6, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. We are called to be strong and to live victorious lives, but not in and of ourselves. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Paul would write at a different time and say to Timothy, be strong through the grace that God gives you in Christ Jesus. Yes, be strong, but according to God's provision, according to God's power, not your own. Jesus would say to his disciples in the book of Acts, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And Paul will pray for them again in Ephesians chapter 3 and say, I pray that from his glorious unlimited resources, God will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. You see, that's, that's wonderful news because if we're not right now, we will face overwhelming circumstances, whether they have to do with the burden of guilt or the challenges of marriage. And the good news is that we have a God who is strong. And the incredible greatness of his power is for us who believe in him. Now there's something fundamental that we got to realize. And it's that power belongs to God. We can talk about human power. And we can talk about things that humans could accomplish. But Psalm 62.11 says that power belongs to you, O Lord. Any power that we might have is unsubstantial inconsequential, meaningless in light of God's power. It's not even called power from God's perspective. All power, real power, life-changing, earth-shaking. Power belongs to God. The fundamental error of life is to think that we need to do things in our own strength. To live a life where God's power is absent. But our text and those that we just looked at a moment ago are beckoning us to understand that this power that God has, though it's not ours necessarily, is available to us at all times. That's what the text is saying. God is the one who has power and it's available to you who believe all the time. In fact, this power that's available to us, he, he calls it incredibly great power. Verse 20 will go on to say, that the power available to God's people is the same power of God used to raise God's son from the dead. The same power that came into play when Christ conquered sin, death, and the devil, and the grave 
is the same power that comes into play when we face the burden of guilt, the marriage that is failing, the child that is sick. The same power of God that raised Christ from the dead is available to us who believe. And so again, we'll read the prayer. Verse 19, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. That is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So we're going to look at some of the implications then of God's power, that, that resurrection power, what it means for our lives. We'll spend the next few weeks doing that. What, what is God's power for us? Where does it come from? What does it do? How do we appropriate it and experience it? Okay, that, that's what I failed to do last night in my battle with haagen I didn't appropriate or experience the power of God. How do we appropriate and experience it? There, there's four answers. We'll just look at the first one this week. We appropriate and experience the power of God through the blood of Christ, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer. Okay, those, those are the four. We'll take time to look at those. The blood of Christ, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer. The first thing we must grasp in understanding God's incredible greatness for us who believe is to understand the biblical concept of Christ's blood. Well, why the blood anyway? Why is Christianity such a bloody thing? Why are we always talking about the blood? Why will we later on after the sermon in the second set of worship sing about the blood? We will sing about blood. That's, that's creepy. Oh, the blood. Why, what, what, we will, what, what is it about the blood? Well, Hebrews 9.22 says this, that there is no forgiveness of sins without blood. Forgiveness of sins is the issue. It is our sins that has separated us from God. It is our sins that has incurred a debt before God. It is for our sins that God will judge humanity. It is because of our sin that God has wrath. Sin is the issue. And apart from the forgiveness of sins, no one will see God. No one will enter into his kingdom. No one will experience God and his kindness apart from the forgiveness of sins. That is the issue. Jesus Christ did not die on the cross so we could just be better people or have a place to go when we die. Died on the cross to forgive us of our sins that we might then have a relationship with God, the sin issue being removed as a barrier to relationship. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. There's no other way. Now, now why, why, why? Weren't there some other things that we could do, God, besides blood? Why is that the case? Well, Leviticus 17, 11, which you guys read not too long ago in your one-year Bible reading, said that the life is in the blood. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22, Leviticus 17.11, the life is in the blood. God says there, I have given you the blood on the altar to purify you, making you right with the Lord. It is the blood given in exchange for a life that makes purification possible. You see, Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin, no, 6.23, excuse me, 3.23 is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 is the wages of sin is death. 
In other words, what sin earns humanity is death. Both physical death, right? That's why funerals are so hard. That's why when people die, we freak out because we weren't made for death. We were made for life. We, we were never meant to die, but when sin entered into humanity, death entered in as well. So sin earns us physical death and it earns us eternal death, which is eternal separation from God, a place called hell. The wages of sin is death. What, what sin earns us is death. So, so if, if that's the debt, the wages, the earnings of sin, death, then what could pay for that but a life? And the life is in the blood. That's why we talk about the spilt blood of Jesus Christ as he died on the cross in our place. You see, we deserve death. What could pay for a life except for another life? There, there's no amount of money you could give. What's your life worth? 80 bucks? A million bucks? 800 million bucks? What, what is a life worth? Life is worth a life. And if sin costs the sinner his or her life, the wages of sin is death. And the only payment could be another life. That's why we talk about Jesus dying on the cross in our place, spilling his blood for us. Because the life is in the blood. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. How did Christ give his life in place for ours? He, he spilled his blood upon the cross. That's why this blood thing is so important. And the Bible says that there's no other way that this could have been done. Only the blood of Jesus Christ was precious enough because he was sinless. There is another issue. A corrupt life couldn't do anything for another corrupt life. Right? Nobody else could die in your place to pay the debt for your sins because they had their own sins. Who's going to pay for theirs? If they died, they're only paying for their own. Christ, though, was sinless, the pure, spotless Lamb of God. So he could die for us in our place, spilling his blood that we might be forgiven. 1 Peter 1, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The fact that God gave his son and Jesus spilt his blood simultaneously tells us two things. It tells us the true horror of sin. We make light of sin, right? We make light of sin. It becomes for us the best films of the year, the funniest jokes. We just make light of it. God doesn't make light of it. His son spilt his blood because of sin. But it also shows us at the same time not only the horror of sin and the horror of being sinners, by how much God loves us and how precious we are to him that he was willing to give his son. No amount of silver or gold, but only the precious blood of Jesus Christ in our place. So, it's very Christian and biblical to say there's power in the blood of Jesus. Right? That strange turn of phrase. There's power in the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus accomplishes something. And if we're going to understand the greatness of God's power for us who believe, we've got to understand first the power of the blood. Before we get to the power of God's word or the power of the Holy Spirit or the power of prayer, it all hinges on the power of the blood. So the first thing we'll say about the power of the blood of Christ 
is that it has the power to make us acceptable before God. It has the power to make us acceptable before God. Before the blood of Christ is spilt in our place, we're fully unacceptable before God. We're storing up wrath for ourselves. We're in rebellion to God, alienated to God, separated from God. But the blood of Christ has the power to make us acceptable. Romans 3.25 For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. The big biblical doctrinal word there is propitiation. Okay, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. People are made right with God, justified, the big Bible word, when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. So God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sins. Our sins are paid for through the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood somehow has the power to make us acceptable before God. And from God's perspective, Jesus was the propitiation. Okay, that's a super cool word. When you say it, you can spit a little bit. The propitiation. Everybody say propitiation. Propitiation. Yeah, say it like that. Spit on somebody. Propitiation. It's an important doctrinal word. Propitiation. A propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies. Jesus was a sacrifice that satisfied the righteous standard and the wrath of God in our place. Because we're unrighteous and we could never live rightly, Jesus lived and did right in our place. And because we incurred debt and deserved death, Jesus died satisfying the righteous demands and wrath of God on the cross for us. Jesus is a sacrifice that satisfies the righteous demands and the wrath of God. And so, because God's righteous demands are satisfied in Christ, and because his wrath is satisfied in being poured out upon Christ on the cross, then what happens by connection is that God is now satisfied with a man or woman who puts their faith in Jesus. You must know that God was... You must know <laughs> that God was fully unsatisfied with you before you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because of your sin. Both your sin nature, the inherent quality in you from fallenness that wants to do wrong, and the practical sinfulness in you that does wrong. Fully unsatisfied with you fully intending to pour out his wrath on you at the judgment day. And you and I would have deserved every ounce of it. But because in the mystery of God, he loved you and chose you in Christ from before the foundations of the world, he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross in our place that whosoever should believe in him would never perish but have everlasting life. And Jesus the perfect spotless lamb of God, satisfied the standards and the wrath of God so that now the God who was fully dissatisfied with us as we put our faith in Christ and are now identified as being in Christ is fully satisfied with us. Listen to me. The blood has the power to cause God to be satisfied with you so that when you sit here today, God is satisfied with you, Christian. It's not that God is in heaven going, oh, 
Wow, I can't believe he even shows up for church. Doesn't he know the stuff I want from him? Doesn't he know what I need him to do? Doesn't he know how dissatisfied I am with him? Listen, it's not what God is saying about you this morning. Because of the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been made acceptable to God as you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross so that God is saying, yes, my son. I love you this morning. I'm pleased with you this morning. I'm satisfied with you. I see you in Christ as pure and holy and spotless, forgiven and indeed even righteous. And I love you and I want to lavish my love upon you. See, the great failure of pseudo-Christianity is to think that God is always mad at us. God poured out his anger on Christ at the cross so that he may now shed his kindness on us forever propitiation. Jesus is a sacrifice that satisfies the righteous standard in the wrath of God. The blood has a power to make us acceptable before God. The second thing that we'll say about the power of the blood of Christ is it has the power to make us free and forgiven. Certainly these things are somewhat redundant, but we shall talk about them nonetheless. Ephesians 1, 7 says, God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. If it took the blood of Jesus Christ to free us, how much bondage must we have been in? See, again, we, we just flirt with sin. We think sin's not that bad, and, and who's to really say, and it's no big deal, and I can handle it. It, it took the blood of the Son of God who draped himself in humanity to free us from the bondage of sin. Then how radical must that bondage have been? If it took the blood of Christ to cause us to be forgiven, how large was that debt that we must have incurred before God? The blood of Christ has the power to make us free and forgiven. Thirdly, it has the power to cleanse us. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The Bible talks about sin metaphorically in a lot of ways. It talks about it as a weight to be born, bared, whatever, carried. Um, and as a stain to be worn. That in some way sin stains us, mars us, dirties us. Though that's metaphoric language, we experience that in reality, don't we? Sometimes we sin and certain behavior makes us feel dirty. Have you ever stood in a shower wishing that you could wash off the dirtiness of your sin? Ever tried to wash it off your hands? Ever not worn another piece of clothes, a certain piece of clothing again because it reminded you of that sinful instance? It, it, it forever seemed dirty to you? Is there anybody who sinned against you so greatly that they're forever dirty in your mind now? The blood of Jesus Christ has a power to cleanse us from all sin. Though our sins were scarlet, this, this full-on stain, we're fully stained with it. Behold, he has made us white as snow. Washed us clean. That's why the church does things like sing, I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. How creepy that must sound to people who are visiting church that aren't familiar with the Bible. Like people are lifting their hands saying, wash me in the blood of the lamb. 
it seems so creepy, but it's so wonderful. The blood of Jesus has the power to cleanse us from all sin. Fourthly, the blood of Jesus has the power to justify us. Again, some redundancy, but some important distinctions. Romans 5.9. And since we have been made right, justified, it's a theological term, in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation or wrath. Now, propitiation we talked about before. We talked about cleansing. Justification. You may have heard it said, uh, to be justified is to be made just as if you never sinned. That's cute little rhyming or whatever, but, but that doesn't get at the theological concept. Okay? Because it's not only that the cross of Jesus Christ cleanses us from sin. But in that transaction that takes place upon the cross, Christ's perfect life is credited to our account. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ lived a perfect life because we couldn't. Died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for our sins and then gave us the righteousness of his life. To be justified is not just to be declared innocent. That would only make one morally neutral. It's not that the Christian is just morally neutral before God. To be justified is to be declared, to be declared innocent and righteous. To be free from guilt and to have merit with God. But none of our own merit. Because even our best things are like filthy rags. But Christ's merit in our place. All that Jesus deserves before God becomes ours when we put our faith in his finished work upon the cross. So to be, to be justified is to be declared innocent and holy, without guilt and righteous, no longer deserving punishment, but now actually having merit worthy of good treatment. The power of the blood of Jesus Christ justifies us. It's a good thing to be stripped of filthy rags, but far better to be clothed in a robe of righteousness, garments of glory and beauty. In forgiveness, we are stripped of the vile and stinking rags of our sin. In justification, we are clothed in the beauty and glory of the righteousness of Christ. Next, can't remember what number, maybe five. The blood of Christ has the power to save us from the wrath of God. Same verse, Slight change in translation to capture a nuance. Romans 5, 9. And since we have been justified in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's wrath. Just changing one word, their condemnation and wrath. What we must know about God's wrath is that it is righteous and fully deserved. It's without error. He's a fair judge. Humanity has incurred a debt. And we must know that God's wrath is right and deserved and coming. And that nothing could ever save you from the wrath of God except for the blood of Jesus. If you think that someday when you die and you stand before God, because the New Testament says it's appointed for man to die once and then judgment comes. If you think that when you die and stand before God that you're going to argue your case, you are a fool. You are a fool today. 
If you think you're going to stand before God and say, God, I know, I know there was some stuff that was pretty bad, but it wasn't as bad as her. Or, well, God, you, you don't understand what was done to me, so I was justified in what I did. Those things may hold up in our relationships. They may hold some ground here on earth. But when you stand before a holy and righteous God whose, our eyes, whose eyes are aflame with righteousness and judgment, those aren't going to fly. The only thing that has the power to save you from the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God, is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we say things like, are you under the blood? Another creepy Christian saying, are you under the blood? Are you under the blood? When you stand before God, the only thing that has the power to deliver you from his wrath is the blood of Jesus Christ. Next, it has the power to cleanse our consciences. Hebrews 9.14. Just think, it says this, just think how much more the blood of Christ will purify our consciences from dead works so that we can worship the living God. So the blood of Christ has the power to purify our consciences from dead works. What does that mean? It means this, when we are awakened at some point by the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we are awakened to the terribleness of our sin and sinfulness and our standing before God as sinners, when we're awakened to that, our first response is to try to do something about the horror of that sin, to try to atone for it in some way, to try to work it off, to try to counterbalance it. So we think, well, maybe I could do some good that will undo the bad. Or maybe I could pay some price. Or maybe I could go to church enough. Or I could give enough money. Or I could help an old lady across the street. When we're confronted with the horror of our sin, our visceral response is to somehow try to work that debt off. What the Bible calls those are dead works. Even our best actions are as filthy rags before him and his righteousness. They can never remove our guilt before God, nor can they ever make peace with God. How many old ladies do you have to walk across the street for God to say, okay, you're right, you're in. You're awesome, all those sins, don't worry about it. How many times do you have to go to church? How much money do you have to give? None of those are the issue. The blood of Christ has the power to purify our consciences from dead works. When we see how the power of the blood of Jesus washes away our sins and justifies us before God, making us pleasing and acceptable in God's sight by the reason of the shed blood, then our consciences are relieved not only from the burden of guilt, but from the burden of self-effort. The blood of Christ relieves our consciences not only from the burden of guilt. Oh, I did those things. I feel so bad about it. But from the burden of self-effort. Now I got to do something good. What can I do to be good enough? How can I show myself to be worthy? How can I undo the wrong that I've done before God? Some people spend their whole lives trapped in that. The blood of Christ has the power to free our conscience from dead works. Self-effort that tries to earn merit before God. Why would we try to earn merit before God when Jesus says, you know what, dude? I'll give you mine. What idiot says, no, no, Jesus. Don't worry about your perfect life. I'm gonna try to live mine perfect. So that what happens then when the power of the blood of Christ purifies our consciousness from dead works is that we're now free to live life differently, to serve God not from a place of fear, of wrath, 
but from a place of joy and gratitude. Not as fearful slaves, but as beloved and accepted sons and daughters. We are now free to glorify God and enjoy him forever because of the blood. Next, the blood has the power to make us God's own. Acts 20, 28, when Paul met with the elders from the church in Ephesus, he said, so guard yourselves in God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church, purchased with his own blood over which the Holy Spirit has made, has appointed you as elders. You see, when we think about church and our self-identity and what we do as a church gathered and the church scattered, we often think too little of it. We need to realize that from God's perspective, it is the blood-bought bride of Christ. You have anything that you, you paid a lot for and it's really precious to you or, or, or anything that's just incredibly precious to you, invaluable to you, that's the church to Jesus Christ. It, it, is, it is his blood-bought bride. That's why when we talk trash about the church, we've got to be careful. You know what I mean? And I'm preaching to myself. When we disparage the church, when we complain about the church, when, when we do all these things, we need to be careful. Because it, it, it is the blood-bought bride of Christ. And I don't know about the other men in the room, but you talk about my wife, I'll kill you. <laughs> you talk trash about my wife, I'll kill you, you talk trash about my wife. And yet we talk trash about the blood of Christ. Maybe we just, uh, the, excuse me, the, the blood-bought bride of Christ. Maybe we just need to be careful with what we say, think, and how we act toward the church. Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and they sing a new song with these words, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, talking about Jesus. For you are slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tongue, tribe, and language, and people, and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. The identity of the man or the woman or the child who has put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross is that we now belong to God. The blood of Christ has a power to make us God's own special possession. As we saw in our verse last week, his rich and glorious inheritance. And finally, the blood of Christ has a power to bring us into God's presence. We're not just saved into the church. We're not just saved into religion. We're not just delivered from guilt and shame and all those things. We're actually brought into God's presence. Hebrews 10. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. It's talking about the benefits that we have in Christ in juxtaposition to the economy of God in the Old Testament when they had to slaughter animals and nobody still got to the presence of God. God's presence was in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. And only one man, the high priest, went in there one time a year after the shedding of much blood. And he went in with fear and trembling because if he wasn't perfectly atoned for and covered by those animal sacrifices, he'd be struck dead in the holy wrath of God. Only one guy ever went into the presence of God with tremendous fear covered in real blood. 
the blood of Jesus Christ has the power to bring us into the presence of God with confidence, covered in the blood, washed in the blood. The greatest privilege of the Christian is that we have access to God, true access to God. He's not some far off, uninvolved being. He's intimately concerned with all our comings and goings. He's numbered the hair upon your heads. He cares about everything that faces you today. He's loved you from before the foundations of the world and he chose you and adopted you into his own family. That's what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure to do that. He delights in you in Christ today. He wants you to be near him. And so don't, 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 don't listen to your own conscience or its corroboration with Satan or those around you when they try to condemn you for your sin. If you've repented of your sin, if it's under the blood of Jesus, then go in freedom. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No condemnation for those who are in Christ. Either the blood of Jesus is completely powerful to free us from all sin and to cleanse us from all sin, or it isn't. And it is. And so there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. No one can accuse us. Romans 8, what shall we say about, about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself, himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Jesus Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Pleading for us. By the blood, the power of the blood. And as he's doing that, the song is sung in heaven. As Revelation chapter 12 portrays Satan being defeated, the song is reverberating through heaven. Revelation 12, starting verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice shouting across the heavens. It has come at last, salvation and power in the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters, Satan, has been thrown down to earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. And they have defeated him by the blood of the lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens rejoice. Listen, this kind of stuff is why Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus that they would understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. By the power of the blood of Christ spilt for us, we are acceptable before God, forgiven and free, washed and made clean, justified and made righteous, saved from the wrath, cleansed and conscious, owned by God, brought into God's presence, free from condemnation and accusation, and victorious over Satan. Tell me why the Christian ought not to be full of joy. We have joy by the power of the blood. The blood has the power to take our broken, meaningless, worthless, sin-riddled lives and enable us to enjoy Jesus together and help others do the same. God, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the power of the blood. 
Thank you for so great a love that you even cared, Lord. We're aware that our sin never obligated you to do anything, but you've done more than any human could ever imagine. We just pray together that it wouldn't be lost on anyone in this room. Lord, if there's any men, women, or children here who have never repented of their sins, put their faith in you and your finished work upon the cross, we ask that you give them grace to do that today. And that you'd save them. You'd save them as they call upon you. You'd wash them and you'd cleanse them. You'd free them and forgive them. And for those of us that have just been stale in our silly little Christianity, Deliver us into greater things, Lord. Deliver us into blood-soaked, vibrant, meaningful love relationship with you. Teach us to enter boldly to the throne of grace. Thank you that you're able, at the end of the ages, to cause us to stand before God, holy and blameless, and with great joy. Let that be represented in your church today as we worship. Communion is here. We should partake of it to celebrate the blood and the body of Christ.